The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your word. We are thankful for uh, the privilege of standing in a line of churches that dates back right really to when you told Peter uh, that you would give him the keys and on his uh, confession uh, that you would build your church. And so uh, we thank you that we are the heirs of that. And we thank you that you have placed in your word Uh, Churches that are like any other church, Uh, churches that have good things and things to work on, and um, we pray that we could learn from that. We ask uh, you to open your word to our hearts and our hearts to your word, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Okay, well, we are uh, looking at the church in Thyatira, um, which is... it's one of the longer letters. So remember, we we're looking at the, the churches so that we can see what a vibrant church looks like. Now, these aren't all vibrant churches, but we want to learn from what Jesus uh, says to these churches in order to gain an, an understanding of what uh, Jesus wants for the local parish. And, and there's seven of them. And we've talked about uh, Ephesus, Smyrna, and um, Pergamum. Pergamum was last week. This week is Thyatira. Next week and the week after, I'll be uh, gone. I'll be in Israel. I'll be a lot closer to Thyatira, and um, uh, but not not there in Turkey in Israel with uh, 29 of your um, of your fellow parishioners. And uh, so uh, Josh Pressel will take uh, next week, and he'll look at the church in Sardis, and then. Um, Darla Meeks will be here looking at the Church of Philadelphia the week after that. Thyatira, uh, inland off the coast, so east of the coast uh, in Turkey, about inland about uh, 40 miles or so. Uh, it's in a um, river valley. The modern city is Akisar. And I realize now, that I'm, as I'm standing here, I did not Google map to see if there's any churches there. Um, he actually doesn't threaten to come and take, uh, remove their lampstand. Akisar. It's in a river valley. So it's, it, at the time, it was along a major trade route. And it probably began uh, as a village for travelers, you know, stopping along the trade route. They would get there in the evening and have dinner and head out. But it swelled as an industrial hub for artisans and craft guilds. So there were guilds of bakers and painters and potters and metal workers and wool workers and linen workers. Um, and like every other city, as, as they developed this, um, this industry and the, and the population grew, they, they developed temples for their gods, the, the god of wool, wool working maybe, I don't know uh, what, that, what that was, the god of baking. Um, but they had, uh, you know, they would have, I know Arte, there was a temple for Artemis there, which is big in Ephesus and, um, and others. And, but, he, you know, when a, in a city that was so guild heavy, um, trade guilds, uh, trade guilds, uh, you had to honor the gods in order to keep the guilds happy. And it was not hard to do. You, eat, you ate their food and you had sex with their temple prostitutes. No big deal, right? That's, every, everybody did that, except when you didn't do that, then you might get in trouble and get kicked out of the guilds. And so, um, you know, they regarded sex, sexual practice as, as worship. And, you know, I don't want to get, I'm not going to get too much 
uh, into that, but that's not unusual. Most of what I know about that I, I learned from the Da Vinci Code, which you know may or may not, um, may or not, may not hold truth. So, um, but Thyatira was an important city. It's um, uh, of the day. It's remember if you've read in Acts where Paul. Uh, it goes to Philippi, and he goes down to the river, and he finds some women who are praying. There, there wasn't a synagogue there. And he meets a woman named Lydia, a seller of purple goods. She was from Thyatira. Uh, so she was, she was one of the tradespeople, and then, but heard of the gospel in Philippi. For whatever reason, we're not exactly sure how it, um, uh, Thyatira wasn't on Paul's route, but it, um, so he didn't plant the church there, but a group of believers gathered there, as, as we've seen over and over again. And so there's a church, and it's an important enough church that Jesus wants to uh, speak to them directly. And we saw in Ephesus that the church was, had good doctrine but had no love, right? Uh, they'd lost their first love. And so He called them to re- return to that. We saw in Smyrna that they were faithful in the face of persecution, and commended by Jesus for that. We saw in Pergamum that they were to be a church that was full of both grace and truth. So where, whereas Ephesus had good doctrine but no love, it seems that Pergamum had more love but no doctrine. And they were called to re- return that, seeking out. And we said we were to be, be a church that seeks to put our whole lives under the lordship uh, of Jesus. Thyatira is not unlike Pergamum. So you have it in front of you. Let me take. Let me read it, and we'll take a look at Thyatira. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sick bed. And those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of their works, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am He who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, To you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So that's pretty clear, right? No. Kind of difficult, I think. So, 
like all the letters, it begins with a description uh, of Jesus that harkens back to chapter 1. This what we have, uh, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. What do those say about Jesus? What, the eyes of the flame of fire, what is that? Burning through you. Well, yes. Maybe literally, but at least figuratively, right? Um, the Holy Spirit. What were you saying? What did somebody say? I think it is the one who sees things clearly, who has the light uh, that penetrates, that um, puts, uh, and I think there is a searing part of it, it's a cleansing fire, but he sees things for the way they are. All right? I mean, uh, Thyatira looks like a pretty awesome church, actually. Um, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. But, he see, but Jesus sees what's actually going on. And the feet are like burnished bronze. What do you think? <coughs> Say it again. Strength. Strength, yeah. What else? Stability. Stability. Weight. There is gravity and authority to what he says. That's what I think. It's going to need. Um, so yes, I think all of those things are, are right. So it, he's heightened the authority and the sort of divinity, really, of Jesus. Not heightened, in the sense of giving more divinity to Jesus, but giving awareness to us of his divinity. Now listen to what he says. This is so interesting, because I would think if I got this list, this, this initial list, in a letter from Jesus about Church of Our Savior, I'd be pretty excited about it. I know your works, your love, your faith, your service, your patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. In other words, you have, you have um, excelled. You're doing, you're, you haven't um, petered out in, in what you're doing, but you've continued to grow in what you're doing. There is more and more that you're offering to the community around you. You're serving the Lord. And I would think, man, that's awesome. They've got doctrine. They've got works. They've got love. They are accepting. They have faith. Uh, and they are uh, serving those around them and within the church as well. Like, come on, man. Isn't that... <laughs> like, that's pretty good, right, Jesus? Do we have to get it all... Do we have to get an A+, plus? really? I mean, can we just get an A with an asterisk or something? But this is pretty important, Jesus seems to say. I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality, to eat food sacrificed to idols. As I said in the um, e-news, I think this is a letter that talks about church discipline. And we don't talk about church discipline very much. So he calls, there's a woman there in the church that he refers to as Jezebel. And Jezebel, uh, you may remember, harkens back to a story in Kings, 1 Kings, chapters around, about 16 to 19. Jezebel was married to Ahab. Ahab was the king of uh, Israel, I think the northern kingdom. I have to go back and double check, but I think it was the northern kingdom. And... Um, and it says that Israel, I mean, Ahab did more works um, against the work of God than any of the kings who came before him. And then it says, it, as if that weren't enough, he went and married Jezebel. 
So uh, she was a pretty rotten lady. Um, and, and I think that she was rotten particularly because she was uh, so committed to the worship of Baal. And she uh, really seems to kind of seduce um, Ahab, and Ahab goes and worships Baal as well. Uh, he, he who was the king of Israel, supposedly in the line of uh, these great kings of, of, of Israel to, to have authority uh, as the really the Christ figure, the God's representative, is just doing everything he can to undo what God wants to do in, uh, in the people. Uh, and so, um, if you remember, Ahab and Jezebel sort of square off with Elijah, the prophet. In one of what I think is the great scenes in all of Scripture, and I'll probably say that about most of the scenes in Scripture, but I really love that scene where there's hardly anybody left. I mean, Elijah is basically the one who is being faithful. And there are 400 prophets of Baal. And, um, and Elijah comes and says, I tell you what, you set an altar up and, and put a bunch of wood on it, and I'll set an altar up and put a bunch of wood on it, and whichever one gets lit by our chosen God, we'll say that's the one true God. You go first. <laughs> and the Baal prophets say, that sounds like an awesome idea, and they dig their, uh, I mean, they um, uh, build their altar, and they put the wood on it, and then, and then they start dancing around it and calling out, and they start uh, cutting themselves and all just sort of crazy stuff. And, and Elijah is just calling out and mocking uh, them, saying, where is your God? Maybe he's gone on a trip. Maybe he's relieving himself. I mean, it's real, he really, he does say that. It's right in the scripture. Sorry, I wouldn't say that. If I'm, it's, don't blame me. It's, it's blame God. And, um, and so... I mean, he just totally ridicules them, and nothing, obviously, happens to their uh, altar. And, and, and what's happening, I mean, they're, around them is there's this terrible drought. Ter- and, 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 they're, and so they've turned away from God because God hadn't brought rain. So they're turning to Baal in hopes that maybe Baal will bring uh, rain. But Baal hadn't brought rain either because Baal doesn't exist, right? So, um, and so Elijah digs a trench around his, uh, around his altar and gets buckets and buckets of water. Now, where he got buckets and buckets of water in the midst of this terrible drought, I don't know. And I, you would think it would be a terrible waste of water. But he pours the water all over this altar. And he's, um, so that the trench around it, it becomes full. And he gets down on his knees. He says, prove yourself, God. And fire comes down from heaven and consumes not just the wood, but the altar itself and all the water in the trench uh, as well. And those who are standing around, uh, who are kind of waiting to see which side, um, who are not the prophets, and are kind of waiting to see which God is, is the true God, Elijah looks at them and says, get them. And they all run after and kill the 400 prophets of Baal. And you would think, like, this is the victory of victories. Elijah has some serious swagger at this point, right? He is really, really full of himself. But he's not. Because Jezebel is so angry about this, and you can understand why, that she says, 
I, you'll be dead in 24 hours. I'm coming after you. And that's when Elijah runs away to Mount Sinai. It's called Horeb, but it's the same, uh, same mountain that Moses got the, um, got the Ten Commandments. And this is where we see Elijah pray to God, and God, there's a tornado and a, uh, like a windstorm and a fire and all this, and, and the, the voice of God is not in the fire, but then there's this still small voice. That's where, that's where we get that. So Jezebel is like this symbol of, uh, of awfulness and anti... Um, uh, she is the symbol of all that comes against God. And um, Elijah uh, see, pro- prophesies actually that she is going to end up in a really bad situation. And I, I'm pretty sure she does. Something about dogs eating her uh, in the streets or something like that. So it's Old Testament. All right. Um, so why would Jesus then, as he's writing to Thyatira, why would he call this woman Jezebel? He says she calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat foods sacrificed to idols. Why do you think Jesus, I mean, isn't that offensive, Jesus? What happened to Jesus who loves everybody? Why would he call her I mean, Jezebel, if she just has a difference of opinion. He tells, he tells the truth. Yes. Yes, he does. His eyes are like a flame of fire, right? Sees it for what it is. Yes. Because she's all idolatry. Because she is all idolatry. All idolatry. Yes. And that's the But it seems as if she is inserting herself in the church, mm-hmm. saying that she is a prophetess like she has heard from the Lord that's you know the, the Holy Spirit be that's the best place what do you mean by that a captive audience like that's right so Jesus says you tolerate that woman Jezebel so it seems that she's inserted herself in the church but she is actually has brought with her that part of her has not been sanctified is that she is and she's really justifying and holding on to um, food sacrifice to idols and sexual immorality these things that were left over from her pagan roots she has not given them up she has decided to try to straddle the fence if you remember in Acts chapter 15 um, Paul gets back from uh, from his first missionary journey he goes up and tells the council in Jerusalem, the, the Christian elders, all that God has done and the fact that the Holy Spirit has been poured out on Gentiles. And they write, and they, they hear about it, they pray about it. It seems good that God has um, blessed these Gentiles. And, and there's the whole thing about should they be circumcised or not. And they write him a letter and said that, that in fact, this is, um, uh, here's all we require, that you abstain from food sacrificed to idols from blood, drinking blood, from eating what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. So those things were really important because they were, they were a stumbling block, and they weren't, uh, they weren't Christians by not doing those things, but it was just uh, um, these were stumbling blocks for the Christians in those areas. And so what we see in, in this, in Thyatira is not far from these churches uh, where Paul had seen the Lord working. And, and so what they had been asked specifically to abstain from, two of the 
four things are right here that she's saying are just fine before, before God. Probably saying, well, we're saved by grace, right? Didn't, didn't we hear that we're saved by grace? It's not about what we do. We can just do fine just to keep the guilds happy. So we're to eat their meat and do their, um, do their activities and then um, and, and we can worship the Lord. And what's interesting about this I mean, Jezebel was uh, in Kings was seducing the people of God away from God by uh, idolatry and sexuality. And so she gets this name, uh, this woman, whoever it was, calling herself a prophetess. And um, and Jesus says something really remarkable. Verse 21, I gave her time to repent. I mean, he says that it's not... um, it's not actually His will that any should perish. I mean, that's, that's the word. But, uh, and so what we need is we need the truth spoken in a gracious way. We need an a environment of some sense of inclusion. We're not um, sending people out the door as they walk in the door um, because they don't meet our standards. But, but after a period of time, as the word is spoken over you, there's, there's this... Uh, you can't be leading other. You can't be hurting other people. And so, um, and so, Jesus is calling them to stop tolerating her. That's probably hard for us as Episcopalians. It's hard for me. I I did a little bit of reading, not as much as I had hoped, but a little reading about excommunication and sort of the history of it and what is uh, what is. Uh, what it involves. I've never really, I've actually never seen, I've heard of it once in 13 years of church ministry. I've, I've heard of one church um, telling someone that they could not take communion until they, and I think it was some, you know, he was, had, he had divorced his, he was in the middle of a divorce and was bringing his girlfriend in and the wife was still in the pews and like it was just this really sort of flaunting thing and the, and the priest said, I'm not going to give you communion. You can, you can, you're, you're living in sin. And I think he got mad and you know, went off. But, but the, that's the only time I've ever heard, actually, of an Episcopalian. And that's, it, it's, it's not it's excommunication in our body, and I think this is the truth in the, in the Catholic Church. Excommunication is not um, sending them, saying they can't come. It's saying that they can't re- receive table fellowship. And... Um, and so, I have been. I have heard of other churches that they have like a church discipline council, and if you're going, it's supposed to be a help, but it always comes off as a hammer. You know, like um, we had people come to our church in Birmingham because this other church had a very vibrant uh, church disciplinary council, and um, and they loved Jesus, and they were had a hard time, and so they they came to our church. Um, church discipline is tough, I think. Because we want to make room for everybody, but you can't hurt people, and uh, that it seems to be. I think that that's the issue with this Jezebel is she's hurting other people. It's not that she. It's not because she's not kicked out because she what she believes, although what you believe is very important. But she's enticing others to participate in her godlessness, and she has actually been warned and given time to repent, and she hasn't. I included in your uh, on your scripture page uh, Matthew 18, and I think uh, I want to visit that a little bit because this is a really important 
passage to talk about how Christians handle conflict. I think what what the church in Thyatira teaches us is that we need to be a a church that uh, handles conflict in a godly way. Because you know what? We're going to have conflict. We're just, we're going to have conflict. Because we're people. We're going to have differences of opinion. We're going to have highs and lows. We're going to have things, people get sideways. How are we going to handle ourselves? And I'd love, so really the part about discipline, or how do you handle conflict, sort of seems to start in verse 15, but I'm going to read the parable of the, of the lost sheep. And I've, I've, I've just noticed this, that Jesus, or at least Matthew, puts the parable of the lost sheep right before he talks about how Christians are to handle conflict. He says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. It is God's desire that the sheep stay in the fold, right? And it is his desire that when one strays, they are brought back in. And that is right before this next paragraph. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone. Now this is interesting because it's not if you have sinned against your brother, go and apologize. Which is also a really good idea. But if your brother sins against you, go and tell him that he has sinned against you. But just you and him. Just, you're doing it in quiet. You're doing it in private. You're not airing your dirty laundry. And of course, this isn't a f- just family brother, right? This is your brother in Christ. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Because hopefully, the one who has the one the one who has sinned against another has done so accidentally, and um, and would love the chance as that's pointed out, to apologize. I I had somebody this week call me and tell me that something I said to them months ago had really hurt their feelings. And I was shocked. I I remember the conversation. I said what I said playfully from my perspective, and it was taken totally offensively. I said something like, you know, whatever you're going to do, just don't tell me about it. And I was kind of, I was just joking, you know? And... They said, they heard, they, they just what she heard, I don't want anything to do with what you're doing or with you. And it was so hurtful to her, and it never crossed my mind. And I, when she told me that, I, I just, I said, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm so sorry. And I just kind of recounted sort of what I thought and apologized profusely. And, and she had this burden of, of relief because... Because she's like, oh my, you know, all this time I thought you were this, you know, two-faced, you say, you seem nice, but you say these awful things, and, you know, like. So, we were able to have this private conversation and be reconciled, and, um, and it was, it was wonderful. And, but I, it had never crossed my mind that, that I had hurt her. Um, but. Jesus says, if he does not listen, in other words, if he digs in his heels, if he says, oh, you're just being, you know, perhaps, perhaps he's right. You know, you have, you have to 
hold this with some humility as well. But if he has actually sinned against you, then you take a couple of others along with you. Not Again, not everybody, but some people. You're not building a coalition against him. You, you want to bring along people who have his best interests in mind, who love him, that he trusts, that he, um, that he uh, wants they would be willing to hear from, right? You're not just bringing two random people. These are carefully chosen, godly people who will speak truth and love uh, to this brother who sinned against you. But if he doesn't listen to them, then tell it to the church. And here's where we get problems, right? What does this mean? How, does it, how do we handle this? Um... And uh, how do we handle this in the church? Um, I've never seen it get to this point. I have seen people blow up and leave before it gets to this point. And I wonder what it would look like. I mean, I know that when there is conflict, I do my best to handle it with um, godliness and sincerity. I don't always because I'm a sinner too. Sometimes I think it's going to go well. I'm going to do it the right way and it doesn't come off the right way. And, um, and that hurts. It hurts. I wonder what you think it looks like when it, to tell it to the church. But as I do that, let me say, if he refused to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Which is to say, someone that you, des- you consider an outsider, but whom you desperately want to bring back into the church. That's why the lost sheep is right in front of this thing. Yes, you're considering them an outsider. They're lost. We want to go after them. And that's hard because feelings are hurt. Maybe I don't want to go after them. What does it look like positively to tell it to the church? Can you even imagine that going well? I see some heads shaking yes, and I can see some heads shaking no. Can't imagine. Yes, Ellen. I've lived through an example of that in my former church where um, it was years and years ago. And I don't know if it was told to the church, but there was a person who um, at that time you know, was doing something that was of a sinful nature. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it went as far as there were elders that came and spoke to this person or what, what it came to. But however, that person, whatever happened, was convicted of their sin. And they came down on, nobody expected, they walked down the aisle on a Sunday morning, confessed what they had done, asked for the church to love them and help them. Wow. They wanted to repent and they wanted to do the right thing, but they had come under conviction. For whatever, yeah. However it was told them in love, they came forward. So somebody in the church came to them or some group of people came to them and, and asked them to repent and pointed out their sin. Them, yeah. We didn't know because they did always did things like the Bible said. Privately, like yes. Yeah. Revival always starts with confession of sin. And then everybody came down and just hugged them and we all prayed. Wow. It was, it actually turned out really to be powerful. a very exciting spiritual event. Yes, ML. Thank you for sharing that. Evangelical churches 40 years ago, this is the basis of what happened with the community's outpouring. Yes. Uh, public 
asking for help and repenting without someone calling out your name and blasting you. This was from your heart. I need help and I want my brothers and sisters to help me. So in both of these cases, there's initiative coming from the one who has committed the sin. And, and so the church discipline is not to keep the impurity out, but to refine it and brought, draw it in. So it's a loving sort of evangelist, evangelistic, yes, transformative for the whole church. I love that. Yeah, it can get out of balance because you got sinners who are on the council, right? <laughs> yeah, one or two. Um, so it, it is. Uh, it's it's something that's very delicate and needs to be taken with incredible humility, and it doesn't always go well. Uh, yeah, Josh. I was going to say, I think there's a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, hope and promise in that last part, you know, where he says, as a Gentile and a tax collector. Yes. Because Matthew was a tax Matthew collector. Matthew was a tax collector, that's right, absolutely. Saying, you know, you can, in a big way, come back to that. Yes, yes. You know, there's yes. a lot of hope in that. It's not like, you know, you might just come back in as just a barely squeaked in. That's a, that's a great insight, Josh. You should just teach this class next week. Um <laughs> Set myself up. Yeah, that's good. You better not mess it up. Um, so anyway, I just want to say that there, there's um, it, it's it is a really I mean it, it's it's we hate we hate this as a church. It, it it's it um, it seems negative. And it takes a lot of effort, honestly, on both sides for it um, to end up positive. Like in the example that you've shared, I'm so glad that you did. Thank you for that. Um, Kind of uh, interesting at the way Jesus ends this letter where he says uh, to the one who conquers, um, it, he commends the ones who have held fast and have not been seduced. And he says, um, to the one who conquers, who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. Holy moly, that seems kind of harsh, doesn't it? And I will give him the morning star. Now, I think what's going on here, Psalm 2 says, um, well, let me, let me read it, but it says, I will, you will inherit uh, the nations. In fact, the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will inherit the earth, right? The, uh, the Psalm, Psalm 2, said, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you, uh, that's a precursor to, to Jesus. We can make that messianic. Then he says, right after that, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So I think what Jesus is saying when he says that you will be given authority over the nations is that we will rule with Jesus. We are co-heirs with Christ. And I do not know what it looks like for us all to co-rule with Jesus. This co-regency with Him in heaven. But I do know that when he says, uh, in, in at least one of the versions of the gospel where, um, I think it's Luke, where he's, uh, the parable of the talents, well done, good and faithful servant, you've been faithful over little, I will make you faithful over much, and you will be in charge of many cities. Thanks, Jesus, I don't want to be in charge of a lot of cities. But, um, but the, uh, there is authority given as a reward for obedience. And Jesus Himself is the bright morning star. So I think that what, what we're being offered here 
for faithfulness is intimacy with the Savior. I think that's what's going on here. Yeah, you agree. Good. So, um, and then interestingly, he says, that he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That usually comes before the promise. This, is, this one's a little out of place. So, as we should be a church of both grace and truth, willing to face uh, and endure persecution, we should be a church that delicately and prayerfully handles, but, not, not, uh, but courageously handles conflict uh, among us. That we don't run from it, but we do it with uh, humility and, um, and urge people towards Jesus. So I think that's what we're saying. Yes, Katie. sexual immorality. Hmm. Especially, you know, in the church, like, he lists all these great properties that would very much describe us, but it's there that underlying problem of the immorality in whatever way. We talked a little bit about that last week, and that that seems to be the one area that Satan seems to know he can always get, or try to always get. Somehow, yeah, it's always an open door. No doubt. Sexuality is um, hard for us humans. We're all, we're all broken sexually. I mean, there's not, a, not a one of us doesn't have some way in which... Uh, I mean, hopefully we've found redemption. But uh, Anyway, well, thank you for that. It is very easy. I mean, even this great church, uh, they've... Probably in the name of, of just keeping the peace, trying to, you know, inclusion, trying to... And we are certainly a church of peace and inclusion. But, so, if you see someone who's leading people in, into wrong, take them to Father Trent immediately. So, <laughs> God bless you. Go to church.